Welcome to FYI, the four-year innovation podcast. This show offers an intellectual discussion on technologically enabled disruption, because investing in innovation starts with understanding it. To learn more, visit arc-invest.com. Arc Invest is a registered investment advisor focused on investing in disruptive innovation. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for investment decisions. It does not constitute either explicitly or implicitly any provision of services or products by Arc. All statements made regarding companies or securities are strictly beliefs and points of view held by Arc or podcast guests and are not endorsements or recommendations by Arc to buy, sell, or hold any security. Clients of Arc Investment Management may maintain positions in the securities discussed in this podcast. Hello, everyone, and welcome to FYI, Arc's weekly podcast on innovation and technology investing. This week, I am speaking with Muji of Hypergrowth. Muji is a technologist who spent over two decades in the trenches helping IT departments implement software and new systems. And I thought it would be a great time, given that it's the IPO week of the data company Snowflake, to really review the history of big data. Big data is a word we've heard thrown around for the better part of a decade or two. And it's really not one thing, but really evolved over a number of years. It started off with simple databases that became popular in the 80s. And then as the internet rolled around, we kind of got this new scale for internet scale big data. And that led to technologies that were pioneered at Google and Yahoo um, called Hadoop. And that gave rise to companies such as Hortonworks and Cloudera, which had rather a turbulent ride, I would say, in the public markets. And now that evolution has kind of continued on from on-prem solutions to cloud solutions. And that's how it led us to Snowflake, probably the most, if not expensive, but certainly high growth software IPO of 2020 so far. So I thought it's just such a great opportunity to do a deep dive. And Muji has written probably the best in-depth dissection of Snowflake, its technology, its positioning, how it compares to competitors of anything I've read on the internet. It took me about half a day to a day to read his epic blog, but it was super, super informative. And anyone who's interested in big data and kind of where the state of technology is should really check it out. So in my conversation with Muji, we really kind of talk about the history of how we got to this point and what makes Snowflake special. Just to give you kind of a hint, it is first built purely on the public cloud, whereas the former generation of technologies like Hortonworks and Cloudera were really designed for on-premise environments. And that really caused a kind of a cap and limit to how well it can grow. And Snowflake implements kind of a unified system for both data lakes and data warehouses. These are, think of these as the equivalent of databases for truly large scale data. They give a single kind of frame and source of truth so that everyone can tap into this mega database as opposed to a kind of disparate dozens of databases littered around departments, which is what has happened and kind of the problem Snowflake tries to solve. And we also kind of talk a little bit about the competitive dynamics heading out of this IPO. This is a very influential company. It is positioned in a really interesting spot. It is basically the central repository of all your data in the cloud. And from there, they can expand to analytics. They can expand to maybe security. There are many, many directions they can go. And we go through some of the possibilities. 
So I'm James Wang, analyst at ARC. And Muji can be found at uh, Hypergrowth with 3H uh, on Twitter. Muji, welcome to the show. I ran across your work on Twitter, as often people do. The big event this week, of course, is the Snowflake IPO. We can talk about that a, a bit later. But as I was researching Snowflake, and then there's plenty of write-ups up there, bits and pieces, but I came across your work, and let's just say it's a treatise, and it took me a whole day to read. And it was the, probably the best thing I've read in software for a long, long, long time. Wow. And Thank you for that. <laughs> and you had great diagrams, too. The diagrams are nice. I couldn't help but, but uh, pick a little bit at the sell side because, you know, here's, here's a major piece of software that's getting released in the public markets. It's an IPO week. And the best exposition I've read is basically call it a free piece of content that's put out by an independent analyst. So thank you for doing that. Lots of people who I talk to who are highly, very deep in this have also read it and they completely agree. It's the best piece of writing they've read on software that week. So I thought we could maybe use this opportunity through the lens of Snowflake and the IPO, talk about why big data is so big now. We thought big data was big when we started ARK Invest six years ago. Back then, the name we were you know, all excited about was Hortonworks and Splunk. So the set of companies have also changed. And I would love just to kind of do a historical overview of where we came from and how we got to this point and maybe where we're going next. So first, I think it would be great if you can tell our audience about your background because you're not a finance person. You're a technologist. True. Yes. Thanks for all that. And the kudos. I appreciate that. Yes, I am an individual investor who is a software developer and a technologist, so very interested in where things are going. And little did I know 30 years ago now that I was picking a path that would be so at the forefront of software development, which is data. I've worked in and around data for decades now. Yeah, it's been interesting to watch it evolve in that time. The rise of the relational SQL databases, first and foremost. NoSQL after that, big data. It's gone through these evolutions for sure. And, you know, it still feels like we're at the beginning, but there's so much farther to go. Really, it's around corralling data, I think, is today's challenge. You've got data from so many different sources. So I follow Okta pretty extensively. Yep. And they're, you know, a cybersecurity company that is around uh, user authentication. and single sign-on into all the SaaS tooling that your company might use. And so your workforce and your partners can all go through one interface into all those SaaS tools, and they can manage the SaaS tools that way. It's a great, great service. But they have a yearly report that they put out, and I've been bugging the CEO online on Twitter to up the frequency of it a little bit since things are moving so quickly. But they put a yearly report out called Business at Work, and did a special one for the pandemic called Business at Work at Home, where they are tracking the popularity of apps within their platform. And so it's been interesting to see the rise of kind of data-based services there as well. And Snowflake was one that last year was the top growing usage that they saw on their platform. So you knew something was coming down the pipe with that. But yeah, I've been in data for uh, decades and... Today, the challenge is around corralling all of these disparate sources of these different web apps that you tend to use and all these different data sources that you tend to use. You know, maybe you use Square for managing payments. 
You use Salesforce to track customer relationships, Marketo for your marketing campaigns. Companies are built on these tools that I like to invest in personally that are the building blocks to building an enterprise at this point. And so you've got all these different data sources. You need to corral them kind of into one place to really gain vision into your enterprise. And you know that's where Snowflake comes in for sure. It's a data warehouse and data lake over all of those disparate data sources so you can really gain a vision into your own enterprise. And that just really, to me, encapsulates where all of this is going. We need to corral that data. You know, Not every piece of data is valuable. You have to isolate which ones are, gain the insights that you can out of that database, maybe start discarding things that aren't as helpful or archiving them, and allowing your company to focus on what's important to them, what insights can you glean, where can you start leveraging AI and machine learning on your enterprise to gain an advantage over your competitors, or even just drive you know, the very next sale. Hmm. It's an interesting era to be sitting alongside and watching from, a, from an outsider perspective, because I don't tend to use a lot of these tools. I'm familiar with a lot of the open source packages. I tend to use things like Elasticsearch and wide variety of databases and analytical databases to support data science. But I'm an outsider to the corporate environment. Mm-hmm. And so I like to dive into what, where I think all this is going, which is data is always going to grow. Whether a company continues to use more data tools They're going to continue to have other feeds of data. They might be buying feeds of data to enrich their data sources with demographic information, weather data over IoT, but also just the passage of time. I mean, this company exists today. It's collecting all these points today. Next month, it's got to collect those same points. Month after that, month after that. And so there's this magnification of data inherent in Companies want to observe their own operations, much less their own software stacks. And so just the passage of time is magnifying things, much less people using more and more SaaS tooling. It's a problem that's never going to go away. Definitely. Everything you're saying makes complete sense. I'm running a Fortune 500. Of course, I want a unified view of my data. My question is, how did they do this before? I mean, what tools? Okay, Snowflake can do this. That's great. But what did they use in the 90s, in the 2000s, in the 2010s? Like, was it a job that was simply not done? Was it done poorly? How did it, I guess, come to Snowflake? It was definitely done. People needed that that vision. It was done in a very constrained way and with a lot of manual effort and pain. So it required a team of engineers to gather data out of your databases. So this might be you have a sales database in MySQL or You've got tooling that you've got to export out of, manipulate that data, refine it into what you're trying to gain out of it, and put it into data warehouses at the time. And so definitely, you know, in the 90s, 2000s, that was the rise of the data warehouse where they were trying to have these kind of very powerful hardware systems that were running some kind of database software And so, you know, it's capped on the amount of compute it could do, the amount of memory and storage it could have, but it really required a lot of hand-holding of the data as you were ingesting it, certainly just for the sake of being from a lot of different locations. So you've got to have a data engineer go and gather all that data for you, and that's a process. But also the refinement of that data, which is looking at it through your business objectives. I want to sum up my sales by region, by salesperson you need to hone your business objectives up front, 
massage the data down to what you're looking for out of it, throw it into the data warehouse. And then there was a lot of games they could play from there. I call them games, but this entire careers were built over these quote unquote games, which is creating OLAP cubes. And because you're so constrained on the amount of compute that you have in these old software packages, you had to like pre-aggregate some of that data ahead of time to minimize the compute necessary on the end analysis. And so that's kind of what OLAP cubes are all about. And who provided the software back then? Certainly Oracle, SAP, IBM were the big players. Microsoft, even you could use SQL Server. There's a lot of ancillary packages there. These were very big plays. These were hmm. enterprise solutions that required handholding to install, educating your workforce on it, educating how you, data engineers are going to manipulate and extract data and import it into those systems. Once it's in there, handing it over to your business data analysts that kind of have the, the view of the whatever kind of operational metric they're trying to extract out of this data and further refining the data around that. So it's just a very manual process all around. Isn't it funny that they knew this market inside out? They were sitting in enterprises this whole time. And then obviously things were moving to the cloud and they knew the cloud was happening and they tried to respond to it. But none of them came out with a product called Snowflake or the product that turned out to be Snowflake. And of course, the team that built Snowflake are basically some very seasoned people from Oracle. But just through the sheer nature of, I guess, startups and incumbent mechanics, they could never build Snowflake within Oracle. That is a funny part about the founders. They did come out of Oracle. They were data architects. And so it, to me, it's almost the same path that Zoom was born in. You had WebEx and you know the corporate structure around running WebEx had blinders on. They wanted to make their existing customers happy and didn't really have much vision into the future about what the cloud could do, how that could really expand web, you know, video streaming capabilities. So the CEO of Zoom left WebEx, founded Zoom, and several years later, we have that success story. Same with Snowflake. They left Oracle. Clearly, they couldn't get any traction about what their vision was and or were entrepreneurial themselves. And so they split out and made a better solution that was entirely enabled by the cloud. It's the cloud that's the key here is you have nearly unlimited scale capabilities on both storage and compute. That's the beginning advantage is that they can scale endlessly. And so you're not constrained by compute. You don't have to play those quote unquote games I was talking about to massage the data in certain ways. You can import the data and then start manipulating it directly in the database into the way you want to see it. And then what insights you want to start extracting it from there. And so that scale is really what's unleashing the new wave of data and analytical tools that I'm super interested in. In around 2010, there were manipulating such big data across clusters, which are just like commodity servers wired together. There were some tools around that, and they were built around Hadoop, which came out of Google and then came out of Yahoo. And that created companies like Hortonworks and Cloudera which form in the end merged into Cloudera, the single company today. That's, I would say, roughly in the same market as well. Why didn't that era of company, either of them, really work out spectacularly? Well, so certainly those are open source companies, slightly different path than Snowflake, although MongoDB and Elastic are both kind of that same mentality. They released an open source product and created an enterprise company around that, supporting it and then enhancing it and providing additional services over the top of it. Where Hadoop, I think, went wrong is that it was extremely complicated. It is a clustered software that has all these components. There's the core components, but 
Then you can extend it in certain ways. You can add SQL features with Hive. There's all kinds of other databases you could install, like HBase and Cassandra. And it just got extremely complicated. It required a team of engineers in order to run the data ingest part still, and then the compute part. So you had to you know, custom script all the compute. The model of Hadoop was great. It split storage and compute. It distributed it. So you had what's called multi-parallel processing. You could split up your compute into basically micro jobs that were dealing with a very small subset of the data, and you'd combine them all together in order to get your total results. And that allowed you to the sense of scale with analytics. And so at its core, the architecture was fantastic. It was just very complicated to use and required a lot of education to get any use out of it whatsoever. And so I wasn't ever that impressed with Cloudera and Hortonworks as far as their strategies in that they're building these platforms, but I really thought that they should have provided this as a service from the start. Didn't Cloudera try to do that with a more business-friendly approach? I think so. I'm not that familiar with what ultimately they tried to do because it wasn't that successful. Mm. But someone out there needed to put a wrapper over it and make it more friendly so that you could just run it. Ultimately, that did happen, but with a different package. Apache Spark came along, made Hadoop a lot faster because everything was done in memory instead of on disk. And so Spark is really what ultimately became, to me, the most successful part of Hadoop. And Databricks got formed as the enterprise company there, and they're starting to provide Spark as a service. That's really where Cloudera and Hortonworks should have started. I guess the other issue with them is that they are both fundamentally on-prem solutions, or at least started off as on-prem solutions. So even though they solve the analytics portion, like if you had deployed it in an ideal data center, you could get all your work done. But if your data just kept growing and you had a fixed data center footprint, like it didn't solve the infrastructure portion, which is just as hairy. No, 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 it it solved nothing there. That was the problem. It was a complicated software you had to install, but then you also had to buy the commodity hardware you're going to put it on. And so you had to maintain more and more hardware as you wanted to expand your cluster. Of course, then the cloud solutions came about and Amazon has their EMR, which is their, you know, basically elastic Hadoop service so they can run Hadoop in the cloud. That then became the Hadoop as a service. You could at least be writing in Hadoop. There's still the kind of the overhead of learning how to program against Hadoop, but at least they would handle all the infrastructure for you. You would just submit a job and it would run. That, to me, was the demise of Cloudera and Hortonworks, is that you no longer needed the on-prem software and hardware. You could just do it all in the cloud, and they're suddenly out of the picture. What's curious about Snowflake is that it doesn't leverage an existing open source, I guess, framework of any sort. It's kind of old school to just incubate your own proprietary solution and then launch in a big way and then get mass adoption. Like that's almost like a 90s or pre-2000 business model. They managed to make it work. Whatever they came out with, I assume had zero developer support, documentation, whatever, from day zero. But somehow it managed to scale. Like, how did they do that? And why is it so much easier to use that they were able just to acquire customers so quickly over their intervening years? Well, there's a lot in that question. Uh, (laughs) Let's start with their architecture and then talk about their, their ease of use. They, from the beginning, based their architecture on the strengths of the cloud, which is they used, it was all initially built on AWS. They later expanded it into Azure and to Google Cloud Platform. 
So now they do support all three. And I think that's one of their strengths is that they can run anywhere. A, a customer can basically be shifting around as needed. But they highly honed their platform with that division of using Hadoop as kind of the model of how to structure. They split compute and storage from each other internally, but then leverage the power of whatever cloud platform they're on. They use the native storage capabilities and the native compute capabilities, and then they built all the services on top of it. And so I like to think of them as a cloud within a cloud. They're a cloud service that's built on cloud infrastructure, but in a different way than traditional solutions. And that allows them to really scale. They scale customers independently of each other. Each customer can scale themselves based on the price point they want. Their cloud infrastructure and scalable at that, they're expanding and contracting their own platform clusters based on that need. And so they're like a cloud in the middle. They're kind of a middleman, I guess is the way to think of them. But ultimately, to the second part of your question, I think they are doing it better than who I consider their true competitors, which are the cloud platforms themselves. So those legacy players we talked about, I feel like they're still playing catch up. Certainly, they're all in the cloud. They've all got cloud solutions for data warehouse and now data lakes we'll talk about. But it's the cloud providers themselves that are the real competition here doing it in AWS itself or Azure itself versus using Snowflake as the third party. But then you gain a couple of things with Snowflake. You gain the fact that it's uh, vendor neutral. I feel like that gives customers a lot of leverage in dealing with AWS. They're not all in on AWS. They could basically pick that part of their platform up and move it to Azure or Google. And so that, I would imagine, gives customers of Snowflake a lot of leverage with the cloud providers. So that has to be pretty appealing multi-cloud strategies. But then it's a turnkey service. The cloud providers are really building a lot of platforms with infrastructure as a service, but you still have to have developers tying these things together. And Snowflake is just a turnkey, spin it up and you're throwing data in immediately. There's not buttons and knobs you have to be fiddling with. It's all just runs itself. There's actually a surprisingly little amount of configuration you do. Besides managing roles and authentication, it basically runs itself. Snowflake was built on top of public cloud, designed to take advantage of its characteristics. Now, Amazon Redshift is built on top of Amazon S3 and EC2, presumably. Surely, Amazon can be more optimal on their own hardware and infrastructure than a third-party software that comes along. How are Snowflake able to beat Amazon literally at their own game? I believe Redshift was actually acquired. So I think they acquired the core software and then extended it from there. And so that might've boxed them in a corner. I've certainly some, seen some critiques in that direction, but I don't actually know much of the internal structure of, of Redshift, but I do know that they did not separate the storage and compute portions of, you know, into separate tiers within their software until very recently. It, I think I got a correction on my blog post from a Amazon engineer that it, last December, they did split those up in one pricing tier. So they're starting to make moves, I guess, but I think they're, because they acquired that product, they're probably boxed a little into a corner about what its capabilities are. Also, the cloud providers themselves don't necessarily make turnkey software. It depends. There's Some softwares are very easy to use. Some require a lot of system administration. It's a little bit of a crapshoot, depending on the product and depending on the cloud provider. But I think that's the real strength here is that they made it a turnkey solution and over a 
really fantastic architecture. It's faster, more performant, and ultimately cheaper, I think, for customers. Yeah, that's what I hear a lot too, which is interesting that, you know, Snowflake sounds so convenient that you would think it's expensive, but lots of people said they switched to Snowflake because it's actually cheaper and cheaper maybe than even Redshift. Yeah, that's my understanding too. Slightly more performant. I mean, they're all fairly performant. They all make, make use of kind of multi-parallel processing. But I think it's that scalable compute layer that Snowflake exposes per customer, where each customer is basically spinning up their own little mini cloud and all querying and analytics and ingest are done through that over the kind of shared part of their platform that keeps track of the storage. Every customer is, is highly isolated from themselves that way. And so because of that, each customer can peg the cost of their compute to where they want it. And so if they don't want to pay a lot, they can basically scale down their compute layer. What that in turn means is more waiting for querying. You know, queries are going to be slower, less concurrency. So if they have a high number of users and they really want a responsiveness, they're going to scale up and pay more because it's a usage-based payment structure. The customer's in control. And that's, I think, another slightly unique feature here. Google, I know, really tries to obscure all of that. They've just kind of got a base pricing tier and you just throw data at it and it works its magic and gives back to you. I feel like Snowflake really does empower its customers quite extensively, both on that multi-cloud strategy, but also the way their pricing works. Does that divvying up among customers reduce, I guess, the capacity for them to take advantage of the cloud as a multi-tenant architecture, meaning all your customers' resources are shared on the same underlying hardware? Are they, are they not doing that, for example, by doing this? There's three layers to Snowflake. It's their storage tier, which is, again, on whatever native storage capabilities there are per cloud vendor. So in Amazon, that'd be S3. And so basically, they're ripping apart all the data as it comes into individual fields and compressing and encrypting and storing them in S3 in kind of a shared location for their platforms cluster. On top of that is that scalable compute that every customer has ultimate control over. And so every customer would go in for any operations on the storage layer, basically, which is querying and ingest. They control exactly what the size of that looks like and what the pricing of that looks like. On top of all of that is a shared services layer, which is basically the API layer of Snowflake that's managing all the security and inner coordination of how its cluster works internally. So it sounds like the compute is more shareable across, I guess they, they bought a bunch of compute, maybe upfront, maybe somewhat dynamically, and the customers can individually dial up and down and they just kind of share that across the whole pool? Yes, conceivably. It's probably even a little more flexible than that in cloud infrastructure. They do completely, again, manage all that for the customer. It's completely invisible to the customer. The customer can kind of pick the size they want, scale up or down from there. You know, if, if we're not getting the performance we want, we can pay a little bit more. Or if we have a lot of idle capacity, we can scale a little bit back and pay less. Ultimately, that's on the customer. But that is a good way to think of it. I, I do think of Snowflake as a cloud within a cloud. And so... What I mean by that is they allow their customers to scale up and down. Their platform itself can scale up and down all on the cloud infrastructure it's based on. And so they've got a lot of levers internally that they can be playing with to get costs down, but they give a lot of flexibility to themselves and to their customers. 
RPM. And cost is a very interesting thing. It's the first thing I noticed when I was looking at the Snowflake S1 is that, you know, if you think database company, guess what the gross margins would be. In the old days, you would guess 80 to 90% gross margins. But with these cloud native providers, you, you have to pay, well, your dues in this case is your infrastructure cost and then it goes to AWS. So they have gross margins in the 60s, but it is rising. I think maybe it'll get to the 70s or 70 plus, but it's interesting that a database company in this era has lower margins because they, they do take on cost of revenue by paying to, to Amazon. So Amazon, even though they lost a lot of share from Redshift, they're not really crying poor here. They're, they're getting paid no, every no, it's win-win. It's win-win for the cloud providers for sure. Whether, I mean, it's a few more margin points for them, I'm sure if it uses Redshift over Snowflake, but they win regardless. If you pick Amazon as the platform to deploy your Snowflake database onto, and customers, when they sign up for Snowflake, get to pick what provider and what region they want to be, they want to have their database in. Amazon wins either way. And so that's the weird state of today's cloud economy is that it's a frenemies relationship at all times. And you get that. It's, it's not just unique to the cloud providers themselves, but Snowflake is their customer that pays them a hefty amount. As you just mentioned, they're never going to have the highest margins in this because they are built on cloud infrastructure. They have to pay the provider for that. But Amazon wins either way. So it's a fabulous business. Maybe we can zoom out a little bit just to look at the strategic landscape because I put out a white paper on, on software as a service earlier this year. And what caused me to even start the research was just how many enterprise software companies were heading into the public markets or came into the public markets or so many. Um, and it dwarfs the amount of consumer internet companies, which is what gets the majority of the press. So I thought it was underappreciated, certainly by maybe people who follow Fang. I think enterprise software is certainly underfollowed. And the aggregate performance of enterprise software, if you just look at their IPO track record, is something like 3x better than the consumer counterparts as a group. So the concern with that, of course, is if you have so many, that sounds like a lot of competition. And uh, it's not like it's stopping that the funnel, the water hose of enterprise software IPOs continue with you know Snowflake being, being the well, we had like six, I think, in the last two weeks. <laughs> JFrog and, and uh, Sumo Logic and all came out around this time. So you, of course, have an investor's hat as well. How do you pick and choose between this giant buffet of, call it, 100 companies that you could potentially invest in? What are you looking for? Where do you think there are unfair advantages or specific areas where growth and kind of center of gravity is going to fall on? Really, the entry point into my investing process is that they have to be executing now. There's a lot of companies right now gaining a lot of press on Twitter and such that are pipe dreams at this point. And so... Drop names, please. Let's, let's oh, do it. Oh, well, the uh, electronic vehicles, uh, Nikola company is oh, a product at this point. But software uh, companies specifically, do you see any hot air around any software company? No, because these are the companies that are executing. And so, I, you know, first thing I do is look at the execution in the financials. But then I like to dive into the platform itself and, and try to, I think that's where my advantage is, is being able to look at the platform and seeing where the platform can scale as customers scale, and then where can they pivot from there? And so with data and analytics, there is, going back to the, the start of this discussion, data is always growing. That's not gonna end. And so there might be new solutions cropping up, but this is an old problem that has new solutions now 
under the cloud paradigm. And so it feels very much at the beginning of what's possible here. I think analytics is the next thing to rise. Snowflakes really solves the data problem at its core. And the cloud providers are all trying to solve this as well with data warehouses, which is kind of those analytical databases from the days of old. And then data lakes, which is where people are just trying to put all their raw data from all these disparate places into one place so they can start leveraging it, sharing it across their organization as needed, and start doing other more advanced analytics over it, like machine learning and things like that. There's a ton of solutions out there for all of those things. I see the next rise is coming on the analytical side that can work over those data platforms. That's where I'm interested right now. And in researching Snowflake, certainly a lot of them cropped up that are analytical startups that can work over those data stores. And so they can provide their own, I guess, special sauce of how they're going to run analytics and find their own niches. An interesting one is a company called Segment that does customer data on kind of both ends of Snowflake. They can help ingest customer data into Snowflake, and they can then analyze it and help companies gain insights out of their sales process and fold that back into marketing campaigns or different directions for their sales force. So you've got these little niches that are starting to crop up. And I, I see the same thing is probably going to happen with IoT. Again, you know, you got all these IoT data feeds ingesting. It's going to be interesting to see services crop up around making the most of that data and performing analytics over it and gaining insights without the customers having to do it themselves. You don't have to hire an entire team of data scientists anymore. There are startups that are cropping up and can do that for you. Now, if we talk analytics, the most obvious public name, obviously, is Alteryx. They have a kind of a more open source, free competitor called Nime. It starts with a K, K-Nime, pronounced Nime. And are these solutions that will still be dominant in the future? Or do you see some of these startups come in? Or is analytics one, one of those solutions that naturally should live close to the data platform? Is this something that Snowflake would naturally kind of absorb as part of its functionality set? All of the above. There's no one answer in there. It's Thank all, you. all of the above. Snowflake is going to absolutely already exposes analytics in its platform. And that's one of its strengths for sure is it, any customer can be writing their own analyticals, analytical scripts in a wide variety of languages and or Apache Spark and be running it in line in the compute layer of Snowflake. And so it's a huge advantage to take advantage of, of all the distributed nature of Snowflake directly in line. So you can basically be splitting up your analytics into little pockets of data and all those results are aggregating together exactly like I described as Hadoop. So I do see Snowflake as Hadoop as a service, not true Hadoop. It's not, there's nothing Hadoop in its stack, but it is creating a platform where you can run distributed analytics over the data within itself. But Alteryx is a very interesting company because they've got an initiative around citizen data scientists. I think that's where it's going, is you've got to make analytics easier. It requires advanced degrees right now. You have to completely understand statistics and have a team of data scientists to extract you know, helpful insights. That's going to simplify. And that's where some of these little startups I was mentioning with analytics can start filling that gap, is they can provide the lens of what your operations are like. Like if you're a salesperson-oriented organization, you can use something like Segment to extract that, but also Alteryx is trying to allow data analysts to do more with what they dub citizen data scientists. So they're really trying to educate people, but they're trying to make their platform easier to use 
through what's called feature engineering, which is basically using machine learning over the process of creating your analytical model. So you're using machine learning over itself to basically determine what model is best for your data. And so that is making the process of performing analysis easier. All of those things are going to benefit organizations to do this and empower them to do it themselves without needing a high-priced team of data scientists to do it for them. I like the Alteryx vision of enabling citizen scientists. But, you know, the thing that concerns me is when I look at your diagram about where all these pieces fit, your kind of data diagram, Alteryx, which basically focuses on the extract, transform, and load section, ETL, sits between the operational databases and these data lakes and data warehouses. So they're kind of, I guess, sit in between an S3 or a, a Mongo and a Snowflake. In their investor deck, they have themselves as going horizontally across this diagram. They see themselves as going all the way from operational data all the way out to visualization, analytics, and reports aspirationally. Right now, they're focused mostly on ETL. Their position, I guess, just in the overall strategy map seems a little precarious. It seems like the valuable part of the analytics, shouldn't that live on the very right-hand side of your diagram, the operational insights rather than in the sandwiched between these two data data sources? Yeah, I mean, so, so ETL is one part of what Alteryx excels at, which is the data prep portion. So you need to be extracting data from a bunch of different locations, refining it down into something of value that you can run analytics over. That's where Snowflake considers them a partner, is that you can be creating all of that within the Alteryx platform and then piping it to Snowflake as the database. However, on the opposite side, Alteryx can work with any SQL database. And so it can sit over Snowflake and run its models and its model creation and running of those models. It can do that over Snowflake as well. So it's not eliminated here. And it is an actual partner of Snowflake, at least on the ETL side. Where I see that they need to move from here is that they need to tie into that inline compute that I was mentioning that Snowflake offers. So that instead of you having to download data out of Snowflake into Alteryx, thereby creating a copy of the data, it needs to be able to run over the database proper directly. And certainly Snowflake is going to start having partnerships more and more in that direction. They already have several kind of analytical startups that can tie into that more closely. And then customers can be doing it themselves with Spark or Python or R. But I would like to see Alteryx move in that direction, establish a partnership with Snowflake to better tie into these platforms instead of copying it out into their own platform, then running the models over it. I think that architecture might be going to the wayside or, or get impacted with this kind of rise of the cloud. Like you're downloading data out of Redshift to perform analytics onto it, it or out of Snowflake to perform analytics on it. It's just an extra step and an extra copy of the data that these cloud platforms are really eliminating. That's the whole point of a data lake is that you're not having to copy the data. Yeah, yeah. and the fact that Alteryx is predominantly on-prem, massively predominantly on-prem today. And every time I talk to them, like analytics today, just it's just not done in the cloud. It's the customer's data is in their data centers. There's, we just get zero, zero demand on doing it in the cloud. And it just it's so contrary to everything else out there that, that it really does give me a double take. I wouldn't say they're restricted to the on-prem. That may be the majority of their usage, but you can deploy Alteryx out in the cloud if you manage it yourself. There's no, there's no cloud service built around it. And that was actually one of my biggest 
criticisms of Alteryx is they weren't moving that way until dot, 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 they hit the pandemic, then released their whole APA platform. And so they are moving into the cloud now, but this is an initiative that they're going to be doing over the next year. So I think if you're an Alteryx shareholder, you really need to watch what happens over the next year. But I didn't like what happened to them in the pandemic with the growth slowing down to a halt. You know, there's some risk involved if they're going to start pivoting their platform to be Windows-based software that runs on-prem to cloud-based or browser-based versions of their software. That's kind of their uh, big investment area today. They, they're hiring people to implement Alteryx basically in the browser. It's, it's quite a shift. Even two quarters ago, they were not interested in this at all. Yeah, it, it all came pretty suddenly. I'm willing to bet that they've been thinking about it for a while, but they were really doing extremely well, 75%, right before the pandemic. Exactly. I, I think they didn't want to waste effort. We're doing really well as it is. And then they just ran headlong into the pandemic. And now I think it's, it really exposes the fault lines in their strategies. I wish they would have been pursuing a more cloud, more cloud native strategy. When you look at Snowflake, their core business, is, of course, is going gangbusters, doubling year on year, more than doubling year on year. Where do you think strategically they're headed in terms of every software company is expanding their functionality? Where do you think their natural adjacent areas of expansion lie? Analytics. I mean, that's what we were just discussing. Hmm. They've got the data part solved. The two configurable parts of Snowflake are how you ingest the data and how you make use of it. So how you query it. They've covered everything in between. I don't see them having to expand their data services much from here. And certainly there may be advances that make the storage even faster. They, they can improve their compression algorithms or who knows what to improve the storage part of it. But it's all in the analytics from here. And so they're having amazing growth right now with customers flocking to them, existing customers spending more. Their top line is expanding immensely, hugely successful. I wish they didn't debut at twice the valuation of Zoom, which was already incredibly high. So you're betting on a lot of success from them, but I, I do think that they will have success. They will absolutely expand from here into the analytics, either developing more partnerships into the analytical space. I would love for them to partner with Alteryx because Alteryx is, if Alteryx has a way to run analytical compute within Snowflake, because of Alteryx's stance with citizen data scientists, making data analysts be able to act like data scientists, that enables a lot of users to gain more insights out of the data in Snowflake, if those business users can be running machine learning themselves. But then also a whole host of other startups and services are going to be built around on the analytical side. So it's the partnerships first and foremost, but Snowflake could be going this direction themselves. There's a company I mentioned, Databricks, that is Spark as a service. So basically Hadoop as a service. They've eliminated programming from Spark. And so they've kind of got a no-code environment where you can put together Spark pipelines and be doing data manipulation. So kind of that data ingest part or be doing analytics in kind of a low-code way. And I could see Snowflake absolutely moving that direction or even acquiring Databricks. That would be huge. Yeah, I was just, saying, I was just thinking that Given that Snowflake now has this exuberant $70 billion valuation, their stock is a powerful weapon. They can just swap for some of the best companies out there doing analytics, either Databricks or Alteryx. Uh, very much so. And yeah. I think both of those companies are very complementary to their platform in different ways. But I think that's where it's all going. It's making analytics easier, making regular business users 
who have the operational awareness of what it is they're seeking. I know I want to look at my data in a certain way. To have those users be able to do more with analytics is going to be the key to unlocking a lot of value here. And that would really help expand their margins and push them more to our software-looking margin rather than a, we live at the mercy, well, not at the mercy, but on top of AWS margin. Yeah, definitely. But some of it's still passed through. I mean, that compute is scalable from the customer perspective, but customers are going to want more and more. And I think they could be providing ancillary services that they could absolutely be charging for. It's impossible to, so- to talk about software investing without talking about valuations in t- today's environment, where basically at all-time highs in terms of choose your multiple price to sales, it's more like 16 times next 12 months. Obviously, as an investor, have to take that into account. And, and <laughs> you joked on Twitter that on, on the day of the Snowflake IPO that, yep, your ambitious price was not going to get filled. And many people got filled that day. So how do you think, how do you rationalize, I mean, maybe even above that. So how do you rationalize what you're willing to pay for, even the best quality company in an environment like this? I guess I have my limits. I haven't, <laughs> I don't normally consider valuation to be, I mean, it's like kind of the last thing I look at. Because I'm a technologist and I am able to look at platforms and see where they can start leveraging parts of their platform and start pivoting part of their platform, I feel like I do have a little bit more insight than maybe a tr- traditional investor. Valuation metrics don't account for any of that. You know, They don't account for what's the velocity of customer growth, how much customers are spending more each year? What's the stickiness of the platform? What incentive is there for customers to leave? Most customers are saving a lot of money by using these platforms. None of that's accounted for in valuation metrics. Back a bit. I mean, these metrics, the South side do care about. They do look at net expansion or retention. They do look at customer growth. Like that's part of their rubrics that they, they use to Yeah, yeah. I guess I, I meant the uh, kind of off the shelf valuation metrics like EV. Sure. Earnings over price or earnings over sales. But I also like to then look at the platform itself and see where it can pivot. I mean, you've got companies that are able to leverage their existing platform in new ways and are expanding TAM massively. Like Cloudflare is a company I cover pretty extensively that just completely pivoted. It's those kinds of insights is where I think I, I have an advantage to spotting that aren't covered by those traditional valuation metrics. Snowflake, on the other hand, it is out of the gate. Everybody wants to own it, and it's above what I wanted to pay. So, so even a technologist without a strong focus on valuation, this is even this is giving you pause. It's not without risk. The cloud providers are frenemies. They, yeah. they might, and and likely are expanding their capabilities to maybe move a little closer to Snowflake's architecture. Certainly, to move closer to Snowflake's uh, turnkey ease of use and maybe even price point. And so there's ways people can try to combat it. It's going to take a pure play to gain the real value of the multi-cloud strategy that I was mentioning earlier and be you know, neutral to which cloud vendor you use. And that's a few have emerged, but they're not making waves that, that, that Snowflake is. So it's an exciting company, I have to admit. It, it is. Well, we've had the most exciting company I think everyone was waiting for come out now had a bunch of others come out. Unity came out today. As you look down more into the pipeline, are there other companies that you're paying special attention to that you think are uh, good opportunities that maybe doesn't have quite the same level of hype as Snowflake? In the data and analytics space? Software in general. Basically. Not yet. Um, in software in general, certainly yes. JFrog's 
pretty compelling. At initial look, Asana, I need to dive in a little deeper too. There's definitely some companies having a lot of success with 50, 60, 70% revenue growth right now. Some of that might be, you know, temporarily benefit from pandemic. And that's maybe a little bit hard to discern right now versus my regular methodology a year ago that I was taking with some of these companies. But it's ever so slightly frustrating because the rising and falling is as a group right now. And companies that I see as lesser capabilities or not as attractive of growth levels as some of their competitors are getting the same valuations. You know, companies that are growing 25% against a competitor growing 60% are all valued the same. It's an odd market. So you write a blog called Hypergrowth. I wonder what is your plan? Is this blog just for your entertainment, just to share your ideas? I think you provide a lot of original insights for investors in this field. What are you looking to do long-term? Uh, is this just purely a side gig or maybe you turn this into some kind of subscription? I don't have any plans right now. It's a win-win for me. I like investigating companies. I'm an engineer at heart. And so I, I'm a note taker and I like diving in and researching things. And I do feel that that gives me insights. And so these are really a deep dive into companies for my own benefit, first and foremost. But then I like to weave a little bit of a narrative over them and share them with the general populace and kind of empower the do-it-yourselfers. It's nice that actual investment firms are also gaining value of it. You know, I'm, I'm trying, I think, to help average investors who don't have the insights into the technology understand these platforms better and what makes them so special and or where they can pivot from here. That's awesome. I certainly appreciate it. And I'm sure other investors, you know, ranging from retail to, to non-specialists get a lot of value from it too. Listeners who want to find your work, it's basically hypergrowth.com and it's hypergrowth with three H's. That's how hyper, I guess, Mujit's very hyper. <laughs> very hyper. Awesome, Mujit. It's been a great conversation with you. I love diving deep into kind of the data theme. I think there are plenty of opportunities coming in software. We think it's going to grow to a $800 billion market just for SaaS alone. So I'd love to have you back. In the meantime, we can hold on to our seats and hope that uh, the market will give us some more opportunities and maybe more reasonable valuations. It uh, definitely will. That's the one thing I can be sure of is that things are going to be volatile and other interesting things will come up. You know, If Snowflake never reaches a level that I want to purchase it, something else will absolutely be occupying that space in my portfolio and and do likely just as well. Awesome. Well, looking forward to your future write-ups. We'll catch up next time. Yeah, thanks. I love what you guys are doing at ARC and kind of at the vanguard of the future to me. That's As the technologist in me, is always interested in what you guys are talking about. So thanks for having me on. Appreciate it. Thank you. ARC believes that the information presented is accurate and was obtained from sources that ARC believes to be reliable. However, ARC does not guarantee the accuracy or completeness of any information, and such information may be subject to change without notice from ARC. Historical results are not indications of future results. Certain of the statements contained in this podcast may be statements of future expectations and other forward-looking statements that are based on ARC's current views and assumptions, and involve known and unknown risks and uncertainties that could cause actual results, performance, or events to differ materially from those expressed or implied in such statements.